Africa Calling, a bi-monthly podcast with sound-rich reports from our correspondents on the continent. African Voices reporting on African stories produced by Radio France International. and welcome to episode 28 of the Africa Calling podcast on July 9th, 2021. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. We have a number of stories from our correspondents on the African continent this week, including a report from Douala, Cameroon, as government officials demolish people's homes. Plus, a look at how the third COVID-19 wave has made healthcare workers scramble as cases rise in Uganda. And back to Cameroon, our correspondent follows a group of women with a mission to bring electricity to the most rural areas of the southwest region. And finally, don't forget our special song at the end. Africa Calling. Residents in Douala, Cameroon's economic capital, are paying a heavy price in the government's efforts to get rid of illegal housing. In what many believe is in preparation for the Africa Cup of Nations the country will host in January next year. In a wave of house demolitions around the airport, over 5,000 inhabitants have been rendered homeless, and they've received no government compensation for resettlement. Our correspondent in Douala, Cynthia Nguemo, talks to victims of the demolition and to local authorities in charge regarding the situation. These are the cries of women as they helplessly washed their homes with everything else they possessed being destroyed. They, like the more than 5,000 other inhabitants of Newtown Airport neighborhood in Cameroon's economic hub Twala, have been made homeless and stranded after the government-sanctioned home demolition. Carried out on June 26, under the instructions of the senior division office in the region, the demolition was announced a week earlier and therefore was expected but still not acceptable to residents of Newtown Airport. Mirabel, one of the victims, tearfully declared her frustration as bulldozers crushed her father's house. For me, I was not expecting this. And what pains me a lot is they are broken it and they will not do anything there. They should look at the condition of the citizen. It's not easy. They should not only destroy because they want to destroy or to have the place. They should also look at the condition of the citizens because now they are broken. Those who don't have a way to go, where would they go? Look at. So where are they expecting us to go? They call us citizens of Cameroon. They need to help us now. It's not fair. By they, Mirabel is referring to divisional authorities who ordered the destruction. This demolition came as the second in a tidying exercise months after the first at the beginning of January cleared the surrounding neighborhood of the Douala International Airport. Cleaning up the city in preparation for the Africa Cup of Nations to be hosted by Cameroon in January 2022 is an often cited motive. The official reason given by authorities is the illegal occupation of private land which they say belongs to Douala International Airport. Hector Etofame, first assistant officer for Vuri Division, spoke to Africa Calling while supervising the demolition exercise. He says they are simply returning the land to the airport. This is the airport's land. 
The population settled here illegally and we are evacuating them in accordance with the law. According to the law, persons illegally occupying government property do not deserve any compensation. Chief Eno Benjamin Taku, a third-class chief of Newtown Airport, is one of the victims. In a sitting room at the center of the neighborhood, a couple of days before the demolition, he recalled how people began settling there more than 37 years ago. He finds it hard to understand how they are today called illegal occupants when the government even built a school for them. It is the government who accepted us because the government saw when we were building. It is since 1984. I said the government saw when we were building. They didn't demolish. The government has given us a school, a very nice school. They didn't refuse. I believe the government cannot behave that way. Even my population has been troubling me. I can't give them any good response. On the Refusing to leave, other victims shared the same frustration as they lost their homes and businesses. A group of young residents burned tires and other objects in protest to barricade the road leading to the airport and the neighborhood at 6 a.m. on the day of the demolition. Their attempts to stop the demolition team from accessing the site was in vain. Anti-riot police fired tear gas and live bullets to disperse them and have their way in. That's the sound of shots fired by forces of law and order in the neighborhood. Two people who were shot were taken to a nearby hospital for treatment, while at least six others believed to have led the resistance were arrested. More than 1,000 families are affected altogether, even the ones whose homes were spared for the time being. Rahimatu, a young mother of two, says her house wasn't demolished, though it may be destroyed in the third phase. But she shares in the pain of her neighbors as she watched them lose everything. Even me, I'm affected indirectly because they've destroyed the school of my children, they've destroyed uh, my neighbor's uh, house, and uh, I think uh, the government is doing the wrong thing because uh, they had to relocate the population first, like tell them that this is where you have to settle, or create a particular place to to, to relocate them first before destroying these uh, the houses. Fernand Zepard is a former professional cycling athlete and one of the forcefully evicted residents. He says he is shocked by the loss of his family home on which he had spent his life earnings. I'm short of words. I've suffered in cycling, which is not even lucrative in Cameroon. I struggled and I built a small house which I had not even completed. Now I see it crash to the floor at my age. I'm already above 50. From where do I start all over? With my little children, where do I go? Victims of the demolition are just like the first round of people who were forcefully evicted without any compensation or relocation package. While some may have the means to resettle or squat with relatives elsewhere, many are left to hover the streets in a city well-known for high insecurity. Reporting for RFI's Africa Calling, I am Cynthia Nguemo in Douala,
Cameroon. A third demolition is scheduled for the area. The remaining residents are trying to find alternative housing as they believe they will ultimately suffer the same fate as their neighbors. Africa Calling, produced by Radio France International. In Uganda, as in other African countries, the Delta variant has been the source of a sharp uptick in a new wave of severe COVID-19 cases. Although the Uganda Health Ministry computed a total of 334 deaths during the last wave, over the past three months, the number has risen to nearly 800. There's been a very slight dip in cases this week, but the government's calling for more help in procuring vaccines. Africa Calling spoke to government officials and a healthcare worker in Kampala to get a better picture of the impact it's had overall. Healthcare workers are stressed as the numbers of people who have critical cases of COVID superseded the last wave in 2020. There are three facets to this particular Ugandan problem, says Dr. Diana Atwine, permanent secretary to Uganda's Ministry of Health. It is worse than the first wave for three reasons. The first one is the variants. Before, we, we never registered deaths, for example, of young people, but, but now we saw some, and the aggressiveness of infection this time is higher than the first wave. When the second wave came, people still had that thinking of, Corona is for those people. For us, we don't have corona here. So people become so relaxed. Because at the first wave, it was not so, so ravaging, and and they took it like that. By the time we got to know, the infection had really uh, penetrated into the communities. The third thing was the schools. Last year, we we closed the schools. Children were at home, and, and we saw so many girls drop out of school. And we're concerned as a country, and we said no. But when they went, to school and because especially private schools suffered a lot so when they opened they were like we are going to try to contain this infection it will not come in the hospital but even when it came to the schools many feared to declare that that uh, there was infection in schools but also remember that many are day scholars so they would go home come back to school pick infection take back For those on the front line, the problems have multiplied, especially when trying to deal with oxygen and hospital beds. Julius Nduguyangu is a paramedic, founder, and CEO of Limier, a high-quality private ambulance and home care service. He says the change with the new variant has made trying to provide health care a lot harder. During the first wave, we didn't get a lot of sick people, got a lot of asymptomatic patients, very many of them, but they didn't get sick. And this time, we got really very many sick patients that needed hospitalization. It's been a nightmare. Uh, I can tell you, it's been a nightmare. Limier is unique in Uganda and can provide hospital-quality care both in their ambulances and in patients' homes. Their services have proven valuable to those who find themselves with severe symptoms. But the lack of planning at hospitals that would normally receive COVID patients has turned out to be an ordeal, says Ndugu Yangu, who spoke about one of the worst cases recently. Uh, I can tell you, it's been a nightmare. Um, you have a patient. We swapped four ambulances on that patient for 10 hours. One runs out of oxygen. You, get, you put them in another ambulance. The other one goes for a refill. You put them in another ambulance. The other one goes for a refill put them in another ambulance so that you can maintain them on event until finally we had to make calls and the bed was available. So that's what we went through every single day. Usually our handover is usually smooth. You pick up 
do whatever you have to do, and then handover takes like maybe five minutes. But average handover has been two to three hours. Either the hospital that is receiving you is trying to create a bed for you, or totally they have no bed, and they are waiting to see whoever gets better so they can swap around to make sure that you have an available bed. But it has been a, ni- a nightmare. It's, it's still is a, a nightmare. Dr. Diana Atwine admits that because COVID-19 guidelines have changed so much, it was hard to determine exactly how the patients should be treated. When we started admitting these patients, that's when actually we realized that the consumption of oxygen, one, one person in a day consumes six cylinders of 6,800 liters in a day. Now that put a pressure on oxygen demand in the country on top of what was existing in the country, had procured about seven plants, four in Mulago, but also others in some other facilities. Before it was like nothing, the oxygen demand was so hard. Now, right now, we are in the process of getting bigger plants, if possibly get liquid oxygen uh, manufacturing capacity in the country. There's been a lot of criticism of lack of planning by healthcare workers and Ugandans in general. For Ndugu Yangu, these problems could have been averted. 98% of the patients who are seeing were COVID. COVID and really critical patients. I think if I have to look at it holistically, I would say the planning wasn't what they got. They probably planned um, for a certain number and they were overwhelmed by the, the number. Dr. Atwine says the government has put the country on lockdown, which has been difficult for many who live hand-to-mouth. Uganda is attempting to procure more vaccines, but even with money in hand, Dr. Atwine says it's difficult. The crisis has revealed gaps in the medical system that the government is trying to fill, she says. For now, prevention and vaccines are priorities for Uganda to ensure that it won't be so dire if there is a next wave. But if vaccines continue to be out of range for Ugandans, they'll resort to other measures, including a new herbal cure called Covidex, approved by Uganda's drug authority. The World Health Organization has expressed concern about the government's approval earlier this month. And special thanks to correspondent Grania Harrington for these interviews from Kampala. Find us on your favorite podcast platform app, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Going back to Cameroon, a number of rural communities and villages throughout the country are literally in the dark, disconnected from the electrical grid. But one non-governmental organization based in Buya is trying to change all that, bringing solar electricity to those who never had a power switch in their homes. And they're training local rural women to install the solar panels and maintain the facilities. Correspondent Batata Boris Karloff journeyed with these women to the Bamukom community in Tiko subdivision in Cameroon and has more. We are heading a motorcycle with female solar engineers called Solar Mamas who plan to bring solar electricity to the darkest part of the region. They are traveling to a village called Bamukom in Tiko subdivision, Cameroon's southwest region. Bamukom has a population of more than 400 people, but no electricity yet. <laughs> On the banks of Ombe River, bikes from Tiko drop off people who will then pay FCFA 100 or 15 cents for a canoe service. 
Since Bamukom does not have a proper paved road, you need to cross the river before trekking to the village. The solar mamas arrive in Bamukom to connect and install solar panels in four houses per day. No, no, the person are inside. It's a very active profession. Here, Solar Mama Alice Sakwe climbs up on the roof of one of the homes to prepare for the solar panel installation. The sun is overhead, yet their passion to light up the community gets them climbing on rooftops. The panels are fixed on two pieces of wood that serve as anchor before they are mounted on rooftops. The solar panels come with charge controllers and connect to the panel on the roof. The charge controllers have different inputs depending on the capacity of the panel. The number of inputs determine the load the panel can carry to supply light in the particular household. Solar Mama Sakwe explains her motivation to do this work as well as explains the environmental benefits of solar electrification. I was opportunity to go for a program in India, a six-month program in India, where I learned solar engineering, even though I didn't have a background in solar engineering. So it's really a privilege. And what we learned in India, we now have the panels that have been sent to Cameroon, and now we are electrifying communities. I really have that joy in me because, like, in a community setting like this, you have people uh, who do not have uh, a source of uh, of lighting at home and looking at the home you have women they do more rules in the house women go to the farm they wake up in the morning prepare their children to school and so on they go to the farm and come back late at night and just imagine your mother after having a a hectic day coming back and maybe she wants to cook and there's no light like she faces that difficulty it's not really easy so now people in the house now have electricity the children cannot reach freely. The prefer- their performances in school obviously improve. Okay. The source of energy they're using is renewable. Okay. It's renewable just the fact that we use this what God has given us, uh, which is sunlight, yeah. to provide light. So, what knowledge do you have about solar energy as, as regard the its benefit to the environment or its dangers to the environment? I don't think there is any disadvantage. What I know, it's, it's advantageous rather. Unlike other energy that uh, produces a lot of carbon dioxide, it uh, emits some dangerous uh, gases in the air. But with solar energy, there's, there's no emission of dangerous gases in the, in the atmosphere. It's renewable. Bamukon village is a community largely dependent on farming. The people get up very early in the morning and return only at night. Solar electrification will go a long way to positively change their way of life. Joseph Song has been married for 15 years and has lived in Bamukon for five years. Song, a beneficiary of the project, says solar electrification will have a great impact on him and his family. First time when I'm leaving the house, a snake can even bite me when I'm not seeing. But now I think that when if, 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 if I'm cooking, I will feel free. Even the children are reading, they will feel they will be feeling very happy. So I know that I've complete, my life will completely change. It will be a new life okay. because of this solar. Yes. I used to wash very early. I used to cook just in the day because there's no light. Now I can even cook, even if I'm, ever I'm from back from the farm, 
I'm tired. I can't even go at 7 o'clock or 8 because of light. Bringing solar energy to Bamokom is a breath of fresh air for the local population who were spending a lot of money to fuel their lamps. Farmer Elega Menkem told us in Pigeon how electricity will improve their lives. Inside my house, I've been used five liters of kerosene. In my house, I used five liters of kerosene every month. It was disturbing because the children were not able to read their books. But now that we have electricity, the children can read and study. We're farmers. Sometimes we come home late from the fields, there's no fuel, and we cannot cook. Now, with the money we used to buy kerosene, we can use to buy food. Solar electrification is a project from non-governmental organization, Rural Women Development Projects. President Maxwell Ebaimbi speaks about their projects. With partnership with the Barefoot College International, we have trained 13 women from nine communities in Cameroon, from Edinao, Boya Royal, Tiku, uh, Manfi in Eshobi, Yangtui, and Gambetika in Bamikim Division in the Central Region. The Barefoot College has donated 400 panels and accessories to solar electrify households in communities without light. At least they can have light and they can charge their phones. Then in Manfe, we have a young tree and a shobby. But for now, because of the crisis, this project cannot go to Manfe and Edi now. So we have targeted this four main focus area of Boya, Tiko, Edi now, and Gambetika. We have established rural electronic workshop. It is intended to train women and youth in solar installation and maintenance. In order to ensure sustainability, committees were set up to oversee maintenance of the installed panels. Zaki Ngeve Etutu, chairperson of the Tiko Rural Solar Electrification Project, throws more light on the management of the solar system. We have a registration of 10,000 francs and a, a monthly contribution that there will be the technician who has to go around to see that they repair, they keep the things move working. Because those things, they have a, a span life of 11 years to 12 years. So those things that they need to be checking them, doing the normal repairs. Beneficiaries of the solar electrification project are experiencing a new dimension of their socioeconomic life and they hope electricity will give them and their family a better quality of life. Reporting for African Calling, this is Boris Kalov Batata in Boya. Africa Calling fans, be sure to tune in for our special episode 29, African Olympic Athletes. Our correspondents speak to Olympians carrying their national pride to Japan in July for the Tokyo Olympics. Stay tuned. Olympic 
We're almost at the end of our program, but we have music maven Alison Hurd in the studio. Hi, Alison. What song do you have for us today? Hello, Laura Angela. I wanted to introduce you this time as much to a voice as a piece of music. It's the voice of Eric Aliana. He's from Cameroon. He's now based in France. He comes from the Badisa region in central Cameroon, and he's very committed to promoting the music and the language of his Tuki ethnic group. Uh, there are only, he tells me, around 3,000 people who still speak that language. So it's, it's quite something. He released a solo album in 2016. That's when I met him. The album's called Just My Soul, and I promoted it at the time. But he's just lent his very distinctive voice to the South African Afro house duo called Jamu Sangari for their single Tama Ro. And in Tuki, that means something like your time, your power. Um, Aliana cares a lot about the, the spirit world, about our planet and preserving it for everyone. So he's singing in this song about being creatures of the universe. And he says, wake up, don't be afraid. Times are changing, but we refuse to let a shadow fall on our era. I hope you like the song. Oh, wow. Well, thanks for listening to episode 28 of Africa Calling. We'll leave you with the fabulous sounds of Eric Aliana. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. This episode was edited and recorded by Erwan Rome and Nicolas Doro. Goodbye for now.
Nango, 